Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. In this week's program, I discuss a few things about the Palestinian Authority. This is the group that got control over the Palestinians in the agreements with Israel back in the early 1990s. This group was to get a lot of money to set up a Palestinian state. It indeed got a lot of money and continues to do so. However, it's done nothing to set up a state nor to help its own people. The money has gone into the bank accounts and the expensive palaces of its leadership in Europe and in the Arab Emirates. The Palestinian people have been neglected, and when they engage in peaceful protest against their corrupt leadership, they are violently crushed by the security forces. And thousands of them come into Israel every day to earn a living to support their families. This is the reality. They've turned to the European Union for help to no avail. This is the same European Union that's quick to criticize Israel of the construction of settlements in our own homeland. Again, this is the harsh reality that doesn't get headlines in Europe and the United States. It is something that we must continually speak about because because it is the harsh reality in which in, we in Israel live. If the Biden administration is serious about reviving a peace process between Israel and the Palestinians, it should start by taking a look at, good look at the reality within the Palestinian territories. And if the Biden administration cares about ending the real suffering of the Palestinians, it should stop making mean, meaningless statements and start looking at the real reality. I discussed this issue in some detail today, as well as a number of items that deserve attention. Again, thanks for listening. I'll be back after the break. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then The Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello. 
I'm back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few things about the fact when negative things occur within the areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority or by Hamas, they're not really reported in the media at all. Things are blamed on Israel's. When uh, Palestinians living in the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip demonstrate against Israel, many in the international community, including the mainstream media, are quick to notice and report on the protest. It seems much less newsworthy, however, when the Palestinians take to the streets to protest against Palestinian leaders, including the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Uh, Palestinian leaders are punishing their own people as part of the power struggle between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Again, this is happening as the world turns away from the perpetrators and fixes its obsessive gaze on Israel. If the Biden administration is serious about reviving a peace process between Israel and the Palestinians, it should start by trying to make peace between the Palestinian mini-state in the Gaza Strip and Abbas's Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. If the European Union really cares about ending the suffering of the Palestinians, it first needs to hold the boss responsible for imposing sanctions on his own people and to demand that Hamas cease using the Gaza Strip as a launching pad for waging jihad, holy war, on Israel. When foreign journalists talk about the dire economic situation in the Gaza Strip, they tend to neglect mentioning the responsibility of the Palestinian Authority and Hamas for the suffering of the Palestinians living there. Instead, the journalists almost always choose to pile the blame on Israel. Somehow, no effort is made to hold the Palestinian Authority or Hamas governments accountable for the misery of their own people. The two rival parties have been at each other's throats since 2007, when Hamas staged a violent coup against the Palestinian Authority, threw Palestinian Authority officials from the top floor of high buildings, and seized control of the entire Gaza Strip. Since then, Hamas has turned the Gaza Strip into a base for Iranian-backed terrorist groups and a launching pad for firing thousands of rockets into Israel. On the other side of Israel, in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority, for its own part, has since been making huge efforts to topple the Hamas regime, including by imposing financial sanctions on the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and hope that a harsh way of life will induce the residents of the Gaza Strip to revolt against Hamas. Now, in recent weeks, although it doesn't get big headlines, a number of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip have been protesting sanctions imposed on them by the Palestinian Authority, which is headquartered in the West Bank. 
including cutting off salaries to civil servants who are suspected of not being sufficiently loyal to the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank. The protesters have appealed to the European Union, the EU, for help, but to no avail. Attempts by the protesters to gain the attention to their plight from the international media have also been totally ignored. This is the same European, European Union that is carrying, a going, uh, carrying on against Israel over the issue of construction in the settlements or other measures, such as the recent decision of Israel to uh, consider six Palestinian NGOs as terrorist organizations because of their affiliation with the PLO's Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is designated as a terrorist group by the United States. In 2017, the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas made a series of financial moves against the Gaza Strip as part of his effort to undermine Hamas. These sanctions included, among other things, cutting off the salaries to thousands of civil servants, halting financial aid to needy families, and refusing to pay for electricity supplied by Israel to the Gaza Strip. In addition, Abbas suspended funding, medical transfers for patients from the Gaza Strip to hospitals in the West Bank. So the sanctions, these sanctions triggered a wave of protests in the West Bank where Palestinians took to the streets to demand that Abbas lift the sanctions. These peaceful protests were met and crushed by the Palestinian Authority security forces. Again, those protests and the crackdown did not seem to be of any interest to many in the, in the international community, especially the Western donors that fund the Palestinian Authority. Had those same demonstrations take place against Israel, they would have doubtless have received extensive coverage and howls of outrage from the mainstream media in the West. And by the way, this applies to the recent anti-Palestinian authority process in the Gaza Strip. The protesters were accusing, are accusing Abbas of discrimination because his sanctions target only Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. These sanctions by Abbas have made the civil servants and their families in the Gaza Strip vulnerable to extreme poverty. These protesters accused the Palestinian Authority leadership of punishing Palestinians for their alleged affiliation with Abbas's political rivals, including Hamas, and also they announced Fatah leader named Mohammed Dalan who's an outspoken critic uh, of the Palestinian leader. So earlier, the, uh, the committee sent a message to the European Union in which they complained about Abbas's punitive measures against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. The, um, this was totally ignored by the European Union.
And there's all kinds of victims. In addition to the civil servants, Abbas's sanctions have also affected dozens of Palestinian prisoners from the Gaza Strip who are being held in Israeli prison for security-related offenses. These prisoners have reportedly threatened to go on a hunger strike in protest, not against Israel, but against Abbas's sanctions, saying that the Palestinian Authority leadership has ignored repeated appeals to restore their salaries. Now, Abbas didn't suspend the payments to these prisoners held in Israeli jails because of their involvement in terrorism. His policy of paying allowances to thousands of prisoners and families of Palestinians killed while carrying out attacks against Israel, this policy remains in effect. Since the Palestinian Authority was established back in 1994, it has spent billions of dollars paying monthly salaries to imprison and release terrorists and allowances to wounded terrorists and their families of dead terrorists. Instead, Abbas decided to punish the prisoners from Gaza because of the affiliation with his political rivals. The families of the prisoners said they sent a letter to Abbas, but they didn't receive a reply. They're, these families are now vowing to step up their protest against Abbas, which they added are a clear, a clear violation of Palestinian laws. Again, Palestinian leaders are punishing their own people as part of the power struggle between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Again, this is happening as the world turns away from the perpetrators and it fixes its obsessive gaze on Israel. If the Obama if the Biden administration is serious about reviving a peace process between Israel and the Palestinians, it should start by trying to make peace between the Palestinian mini-state in the Gaza Strip and Abbas's Palestinian Authority entity in the West Bank. If the EU really cares about ending the suffering of the Palestinians, it first needs to hold Abbas responsible for imposing sanctions on his own people and cease using Gaza as a launching pad for waging holy war against Israel. This is the sole means of helping the Palestinians and achieving stability and peace in the Middle East. The, the, the daily doses of anti-Israel denunciation are not a cure to the problems here in between Israel and the Palestinians. They have to help the Palestinians get along with each other. I'll be back after the break. Hi. 
Hi, everyone. This is Andrea Simento from Jerusalem, inviting you to drop everything and join me on my show, Pull Up a Chair. We'll visit this week's quirky stories, meet fabulous guests, and discover my Israel. Together, we'll laugh, shout, and explain the topics that make us say, hey, we've got to talk about that. So get comfortable and pull up a chair with me, Andrea Simento, every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The, at the moment, uh, Israel's borders are fairly calm. But there's a reason for this. Back in 2006, in the so-called Second Lebanon War, the Israeli government made a decision to launch a ground attack in the last two days of the war. It was controversial. In retrospect, the attack seems to have contributed to the relative stability created since then on Lebanese front, as the Hezbollah leadership, who really run the show in Lebanon, fully recognized the significance of the move, a flanking maneuver that would have encircled most of that organization's forces south of the Latani River. Take a look at the map of Lebanon, and you'll see what I mean. So what happened was that Hezbollah hastily accepted a ceasefire. However, they're quite clever, Hezbollah, they're quite strong, and they were quick to draw lessons from the experience. So according to our military experts, the they, Hezbollah realized that a boosting of fighting capabilities in villages and nature reserves and mountain areas and mountainous thickets and underground fortifications and villages and mobile anti-tank systems was the way they should defend themselves from Israel. And also deployment of forces uh, throughout Lebanon up to Beirut and uh, They're trying to do this in a way that prevents the Israeli army from easily encircling the Hezbollah forces south of the Litani River. That's what Israel did back in 2006. Now, they've they've intensified their ability of rockets and missiles. On the eve of the Second Lebanon War, Hezbollah's firepower was estimated at less than 15,000 rockets and missiles. Since then, it's expanded in both quality and quantity. The arsenal is now estimated to be at more than 150,000 rockets and missiles. So that gives it an advantage, a chance of survival, even if the Israeli army uh, succeeds, as it did in 2006, in, in destroying some of their uh, rocket arrays in a preemptive airstrike, 
Also, they have had a buildup of commando forces to be used for a frontal assault on Israeli border towns and villages, as well as key strategic points along the confrontation line. Beyond the immense psychological impact of such actions, this, the, the like of which really haven't happened since the 1948 independence war, the, doing so would prevent and disrupt and delay a ground offensive of Israel into Lebanon. So now our general staff and the Northern Command are well aware of these shifts and the next war on the Lebanese front could be a new and serious challenge for both the Israeli army and Israeli citizens. I am not a, an expert on strategy or things of that, of that nature. I only know what I read in the newspapers and follow the headlines. The, the, the war back in 2006 caught Hezbollah in the midst of a build-up deployment that had begun previously from that. So uh, they, they would, their plan was to continually fire in all possible ranges from camouflage areas. And the idea was to harm Israel's, Israeli civilian military home front in general. They had a multi-dimensional defense capabilities across the entire area, including underground, which they assume, and indeed it would correctly exact a high price for any invasion by our army, and also raids into Israeli territory across the front in a manner that would require the Israeli army to invest a continuous defensive effort in defending our our people. Now what happened was, when the war broke out back in 2006, the Hezbollah was not as, as uh, prepared as they are today. They, they, they were fairly mature fighters and then, but their commando force was at that time still in the early stages of development, but a lot has happened since then. So, in, in, if you sum it up, back in 2006, 15 years ago, the Israeli army was not forced to defend Israeli border localities and outposts. However, and since then, the Hezbollah's commando forces have evolved into a force of what a considerable force of 10 brigades, and they've accumulated rich combat experience in fighting in Syria, which is they've been doing for the last 15 years. And they've, been, they've expanded their rocket and missile arsenal and its deployment across Lebanon facing Israel. So the Hezbollah is, uh, is enabled to continue fighting even while losing a significant portion of its territory and systems. In other words, Israel defeated Hezbollah back in 2006, but the enemy that Israel is facing this time around is a much more well-developed en uh, enemy. And also, that war in 2006 didn't extend beyond the Lebanese area. Some fighting ensued in the Gaza Strip, but Israel took care of it. 
And at that time, Hamas didn't have rockets and missiles in quantity or quality, so that really didn't disrupt the routine life of Israeli population. However, according to the experts, as I understand it from what I read, this is no longer the case. In the interim since 2006, Hamas had become an inescapable threat. Inspired by Hezbollah, Hamas adopted a war concept in Gaza. Both terrorist organizations, one in Gaza and one in Lebanon, have learned organizational and operational lessons from the IDF operations in Gaza over the past decade. So, what does this mean? This development has led to a significant turnaround in Israel's strategic position. Ever, ever since the signing of the peace agreement with Egypt in 1979, Israel's assumption has been that war would take place on one front. Today, however, Israel may find itself find itself facing Hezbollah on this, in the north, while simultaneously facing the same kind of assaults from the Gaza Strip on our southwest. In the summer of 2006, the fighting focused only on Lebanon, uh, and very few forces remained in the Golan Heights, as there was no danger that the Syrian army would join the war. However, in this new era, 15 years later, given the growing threat from Syria resulting from the establishment of extensive Iranian-controlled Shiite militia in Syria, the IDF, our army, will require war readiness in the Syrian arena as well as the Lebanese. Israel could find itself besieged by the Qasem Soleimani doctrine of a fire ring of rockets and missiles coming from all directions, from Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, and even perhaps on Iran. The Second Lebanon War may have been the last time Israel could focus on fighting on one front. The next war may well be a regional war. So this strategic shift necessitates a significant increase in the order of our Israeli army's forces. And the truth of the matter is, the Israeli public will also need to be prepared for a war such as not seen since the War of Independence. Now, everything I've said in this segment of the program, I am not an expert. I read a lot of what's written by the experts. Uh, for example, the one of the um, Gershon Cohen was a major general in the army. And he's retired, and he writes uh, uh, perspective papers about the situation here. And what I what I share with the listeners in, the, in this portion of the program is pretty much what I understand from reading the work the reports published by. Major General Gershon Harkoen. In other words, again, I'm not an expert, but it could well be that the next time we have to fight, it'll be on many, many fronts at the same time, something we, did, we haven't had to face since the War of Independence back in 1948. So I, I assume that our um, 
thinkers are planning for such a war, and the question is whether or not the citizenry of Israel, the home front, is, is itself prepared for such a situation. Right now, everybody's mind is caught up by coronavirus, but worse things could happen. Uh, I'll be back after the break. Are you interested in transforming your life, drawing closer to the Creator, and uncovering the deeper meanings and hidden treasures in the Hebrew Bible? Then join me, Rav Yitzhak Michelson, and me, William Hall, on the Science of Kabbalah, where we are seeking to narrow the gap between what we understand of our physical and spiritual worlds. So make sure to tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Israel Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, here on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about a subject which is going to become a bone of contention sooner or later between Israel and the Biden administration. The American administration has declared its intention to reopen its Jerusalem consulate as a representative body to the Palestinian leadership and to provide consular services to the population of the disputed territories is becoming a growing political stumbling block in the relationship between Israel and the United States. The complexity and delicacy of this issue is being compounded by statements by the Palestinian leadership that in effect are turning the issue into a symbolic focal point in its claims to redivide Jerusalem and cancel the former administration, that is the Trump administration's recognition of Israel of Jerusalem as Israel's capital city. In addition to the U.S. congressional commitments over the years endorsing Israel Israel's capital as Jerusalem. There are a number of laws, of uh, points of international law that can't be ignored, and they were pointed out by Alan Baker, who uh, was a, uh, a legal advisor to our government here, and he's now the uh, director of the Institute for Contemporary Affairs at the Jerusalem Center. Uh, so I want to touch of, upon a few of these things because the issue is coming to a head and I want the listeners to be aware of the issues at hand. In the May of 2018, the United States formally proclaimed and recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and that was a major change of U.S. policy. It revoked the situation that existed beforehand, 
And we, since the establishment of the State of Israel back in 1948, Jerusalem had never been considered by the United States to even be Israeli sovereign territory. So what happened was that formal American recognition of Israel's sovereignty in Jerusalem established a new bilateral legal situation that replaced the former policy of non-recognition, uh, which was the, was the situation before this uh, uh, two years ago. The former situation had enabled the U.S. as well as other countries to maintain independent consular missions existing since the mid-19th century uh, of the Ottoman administration of the area. Uh, they were originally set up to serve Americans visiting the Holy Land, and the Americans have an embassy, had an embassy in Tel Aviv from 1948 until two years ago when Trump moved it. With the establishment of the 1993-1995 Oslo Accords uh, of the Palestinian Authority as an autonomous administration, that is, the Palestinian Authority as an autonomous administration with powers and responsibilities in parts of the area of the this country which the, the is more or less controlled by the Palestinians, the independent and separate U.S. consulate in Jerusalem developed a new role of overseeing U.S. relations with this Palestinian political entity as well as with Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem, the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria, and the Gaza Strip. However, in acknowledging Israel's sovereignty in Jerusalem, the 2018 proclamation irrevocably altered this situation and, re and rendered the existence of an independent U.S. consulate in Jerusalem serving the Palestinians simply redundant and incompatible U.S. official policy. With the recognition in 2018 of Jerusalem as Israel's capital by the United States, the mutually accepted consular relation between Israel and the United States is based on the 1963 Vienna Convention of Consular Relations, to which both Israel and the United States are party. Now, Article 4 of this convention determines that consular posts or any other offices forming part of a consular post may be established in the, ter in the territory of the re receiving state only with the receiving state's consent. Also, Article 7 and 8 of that convention require the exercise of consular functions vis-a-vis -vis on behalf of another state requires specific approval of the, the state. The U.S. is one of the signatories uh, as a witness to the 1993 Oslo Accords between Israel and the PLO. In Article 10, Section 5 of that agreement, known as Oslo II, the parties agreed that the Palestinian Authority established by the agreement to administer the areas under its control will not have powers and responsibility 
in the sphere of foreign relations, including permitting the establishment of foreign missions in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, the appointment or admission of diplomatic and consular staff, and he exercised the diplomatic functions. In other words, the Palestinians cannot permit any diplomatic functions in their areas. And the same article, the agreement, provides for the possible establishment of representative offices by foreign states in the areas under control of the Palestinian Authority in order to further economic, culture, and other agreements for the benefit of the Palestinian Authority. Therefore, reopening a U.S. consulate in Jerusalem to to serve the Palestinian Authority and its population would be totally incompatible with the ISO Accords and would constitute an undermining of the American status as witness to those accords. Opening by the United States of such a representative office in Ramallah or in Gaza or anywhere else in the territories under Palestinian governance would be in accordance with the peace process documentation agreed to by Israel and the Palestinians and supported by the United States and others and would not require Israel's consent inasmuch as Israeli law is not applied in those areas. In other words, Israeli law is not applied in Ramallah. So it's it's only a couple miles north of Jerusalem or in Gaza. So if the Americans want to have some kind of office there representing the American government, that's fine, because those areas are at the moment not sovereign Israeli territory. The city of Jerusalem is sovereign Israeli territory, and Israel should not allow any representation open by the United States uh, for the Palestinian Authority. Only in this, in a manner, the U.S. could establish a mission to provide services to the Palestinian Authority would be in an office in Ramallah, not in Jerusalem. That would be compatible with U.S. policy and with U.S. international law commitments, and that would not undermine American commitments and proclamations. In other words, the bottom line is all the sides have agreed that there is a certain area which is sovereign Israeli territory, and there are certain areas which were are, are in the meantime under the, I don't want to use the word sovereignty, but under the Palestinian Authority. Therefore, if the United States wants to go ahead and open up any kind of representative office in Ramallah or in Gaza, they're entitled to do so. It is not sovereign Israeli territory. But if they want to open a consulate in Jerusalem for the for service to the Palestinians, the Jerusalem is sovereign Israeli territory, and Israel would have to give its permission for such a thing to be done. People in Israel are by and large opposed to such an, an idea because we consider Jerusalem as our capital and only as our capital, and no other nation should, uh, or, and, or any uh, entity like the Palestinian Authority should have any kind of formal office 
in Jerusalem, which is our sovereign territory. So the U.S. administration is talking about opening up a consul in Jerusalem to the Palestinians, which is absolutely uh, in contradiction to everything that's been signed between the United States and Israel and the, even the Palestinian Authority over the last uh, 50, 60 years. So I just want to try as much as possible to clarify this for the listeners because the issue is going to come up uh, probably in an unpleasant way probably sometime within the next year, if not within the next six six months. So um, U.S. policy regarding Jerusalem should not be changed. Uh, Thanks again for listening. love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.